Good morning, Covenant College. I was, um, Chaplain Lowe gave me uh, some directions before I introduce our speaker. Is this on or is that just my imagination? It's off. Can you hear me? No. That's right. I can talk loud. Um, so this, now you can hear me? Yeah, okay. Um, this Friday, we have another Covenant 360. And, um, yes. I think, the, I think the message, despite what he told me, really comes down to don't be twits to our visitors. But, but really, really, what we want to do is remind you that you, I know it's hard to believe, but you were a high school junior or senior one time yourself. And uh, this is a great opportunity, in all seriousness, for us to extend uh, Christian hospitality uh, to these folks, to give them a taste of Covenant College. And I think one of the great things we have here is this community, is student life. So, so please do warmly welcome our visitors. That would be great. With that said, um, this morning we continue our faculty lecture series on Reformed for What? It's one of the ways that at Covenant we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And today it's our privilege, there we go, to hear Dr. John Rush. That's right. Dr. Rush has been with us at Covenant College since 2016, and since his arrival, I've had the joy to spend some time with him, to even sit in on a class of his and learn from him. And I have to say, I really love his humility, his fresh perspective. And those of you who've had him as a student kind of know there, there's a bit of a, there's like a, it's hard to put your finger on, I was looking for the words, but there's some kind of, there's like a joy in his work um, that I think is really, delightful to be around and um, to be energized by. But since he's newer, let me just give you a little bit of background since some of you don't know. He completed his studies with a PhD from University of Hawaii. That sounds like a good move. But before coming to Covenant, Dr. Rush taught economics at LCC International in Lithuania, which is cool, and at Marlborough College in Vermont. Both of those places, he has interesting stories, but I'll let him tell you about them. What you probably don't know is he grew up as a missionary kid and spent much of his growing up years in New Zealand, exactly, struggling uh, for the gospel there since it's such a difficult place, not. Um, he, he and his wife have one energetic son and another on the way. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Rush. Good morning, Covenant College. It is a blessing and privilege to stand before you today. I, I know a pastor who at one point passed out during a sermon, tumbled over the podium and off the stage, and my main goal is not to do that. Uh, this is certainly the largest room I have ever addressed, and I'm, I may be a little bit nervous. But I'm very grateful that we gather together for chapel. As Dr. Capick said, I have taught other places. Marlboro College in Vermont was a secular college. There was no chapel. And it, it is just such a blessing to me to be part of a community where we can come together regularly and refresh our perspective. 
to remember what is truly most important. I pray that we don't take this blessing for granted. I'm going to read today from Luke chapter 16, where we find a challenge not to lose focus on the reality that we all live awaiting the return of Christ, and that reality should infuse all that we do and say. There is a lot going on in this parable, and I'm not intending to address all the potential issues, but I will make some general observations that, for me, point in an interesting direction. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Please pray with me. Maker of heaven and earth, we thank you for the opportunity to read your word and reflect upon it in this community. I ask that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts will be pleasing to you. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. So I am an economist. My vocation is to study the ways in which human beings manage the world God has given to us, entrusted to us, to seek to better understand the effective ways to organize the resources and people God has placed in his world. I believe that this task matters to God. In the passage I read, Jesus says, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? It sounds like how we use worldly resources available to us is part of an evaluation of our trustworthiness as stewards or managers of the Creator. The material things around us may not be of ultimate importance, but how we use them does matter. Martin Luther affirms this in a sermon at the Castle Church in Weimar, Weimar, however you say that, where he states, the prince should think, Christ has served me and made everything to follow him, Therefore, I should also serve my neighbor, protect him, and everything that belongs to him. That is why God has given me this office, and I have it that I might serve him. The same is true for shoemaker, tailor, scribe, or reader. If he is a Christian tailor, he will say, I make these clothes because God has bidden me do so, so that I can earn a living, so that I can help and serve my neighbor. There should be a healthy appreciation among us that we have enormous potential to serve and glorify God in the way we interact with the material world. 
This is not just about the use of wealth. Our greatest amount of practical influence in the world will likely be through our vocations, the real-life, complicated, exhausting, and I hope exciting work that God calls us to do in our communities and our homes. I anticipate that in the audience here at a Reformed college, not many of you would object to that statement, which makes it all the more important to ask ourselves how we are doing. Are we acting as trustworthy managers of the resources entrusted to us? I think the truth is that it is harder to do this well than it is to agree with the principle. In fact, I believe that the passage from Luke tells us that being a trustworthy manager is about more than acknowledging the ultimate ownership of God. In fact, I want to argue it asks for more than even a sincere hope to love our neighbor. I'm suggesting to you today that Jesus wants you to be shrewd. When I was growing up, one of my favorite TV shows was The A-Team. I don't know if anybody's seen that one. There's a movie sort of recently. One of the stars of that show was Mr. T. He played B.A. Barakas. I don't know if anyone knows who Mr. T is. He's not the guy with the pizza in St. Elmo. Um, I think my friends in the chaplain's office have arranged a picture um, to remind you that might jog your memory. One of the things he was famous for saying in, in that show and other things he acted in uh, was, I pity the fool. I mean, he said it better, but that was were the words. He always had his eye out for people doing foolish things. In fact, later in his career, in the sort of mid-2000s, he had an unfortunately very short-lived reality show called I Pity the Fool, where Mr. T would show up in places where people were being fools, and he would straighten them out. And he would have a poem that he would read about the day. I don't think any of us aspire to be fools. None of us would want Mr. T showing up, calling us fools. As I bring this up, I think it's possible some of you may be recalling one of our favorite verses in Psalms. Right? It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. We would all like to think of ourselves as wise. It is usually the other person who is the fool. However, in this passage, when evaluating the way God's people use the worldly resources available to them, Jesus actually suggests that we may be acting like fools even when compared to the fools mentioned in Psalms. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, I realize that when I'm saying shrewd, many of you probably think, have a feeling that's bad. In our common usage, shrewd is often associated with behavior that is perhaps not quite honest. And we need to understand that to appreciate what Jesus is looking for in this passage, shrewdness, though it can be used badly, is not in itself bad. In fact, the word used here, I'm, I'm told by people that I believe, is used elsewhere in the Gospels as wisdom, such as when Jesus says that everyone who hears my words and does them will be like a wise man. And that would be a good way to think of them here, this word. It's a kind of instrumental reasoning that contributes to action being effective. We see this in detective stories or war movies when the good guy can recognize the cleverness of his enemy without actually agreeing with his enemy's purpose. One of the reasons I'm fascinated by this passage is that if economics has a virtue, this is it, shrewdness, taking effective action in the pursuit of goals. So what does this shrewdness look like? I'm going to emphasize two characteristics that are a part of this shrewdness, attention and discernment. Both are crucial and both are difficult for us. When confronted with the prospect of unemployment, 
The manager in the story responds proactively. He evaluates his options carefully. He is paying attention to his situation and resources. He understands the power available to him as a part of his position, and he commits that power to achieving his goal of personal comfort and security. If we are to make good use of the resources that have been given to us, we must learn to pay careful attention to our lives. We must be actively aware of the particular situation in which God has placed us, as well as the resources he has made available to us, both by nature of ownership and by nature of our vocations. God has given us tremendous gifts in our persons, but also in the earthly resources of our communities and the roles to which he calls us. This passage clearly indicates that these resources matter. Have you paid attention to them? Do you know what they are and how they can be used? You're in college, so that's certainly a good sign that you're wanting to make good use of the things God has entrusted to you, but we have to keep paying attention. I believe that we live in a context where paying careful attention is not going to come naturally. If someone were to ask any of us, what do you want most in life? Is your desire for the kingdom of God? I'm sure we would all have the right answer. We would not deny our proper goal, but how focused are we? Jesus is coming soon. Are we actively working to be found prepared for that day? Are we really paying attention to what we believe to be our reality as participants in the present and coming kingdom of God? C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I don't think Lewis would find that we have progressed. How easily pleased we are. Our attention is a precious resource. And we live in an economy that is engaged in a relentless pursuit to find ways to make money by distracting us. Facebook arranges pictures to keep you scrolling for no particular reason. YouTube lines up videos to keep you watching. App makers create games fine-tuned to keep you playing for as long as possible. We can have music or podcasts playing in our ears all day long and never give the world around us our full attention. The internet stands as a potential black hole with companies willing to absorb all the attention we are willing to give. This method of making money has become so important that there has lately been concern among some business analysts that when we consider the scale of all the different companies planning to make money off of attention this way, we have to seriously ask, are there enough minutes available to satisfy these plans? We as Christians are not immune to this. Though we know our focus should be on God and his kingdom, we are far too easily distracted by things that are not helpful for our purpose. In practice, we are far too easily pleased. The internet and smartphones are not bad, but we must engage with them shrewdly. We must reflect and make them serve our purpose. How can we seek the kingdom of God if we are distracted, if we are not actually looking for it? In other words, we must stay awake. The shrewd pay attention. If we aren't paying attention, can we really claim to be acting honestly? However, it must also be remembered that paying attention is not enough. That won't guarantee that you act in a trustworthy manner. We must do better than the manager in the story. 
To truly act wisely, we must properly discern the use to which we put our resources. I am convinced that if the world does not distract us from our resources and positions, it will try to corrupt our discernment of their proper use by convincing us that they are there to promote our own comfort and well-being. In our context, we are always in danger of making ourselves a black hole, and the gifts God has given us become means of promoting our own individualistic vision of happiness, which will never be satisfied. If we aren't paying attention and fighting this perspective, this is what we will become. This is what happens to the manager in the story. His pursuit of a self-centered self-interest ends with fraud, termination of employment, and the manipulation of others. I think we can look around us, and that can seem fairly familiar. Fortunately, we are offered another standard. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus calls us to use our resources to build relationships in a manner that is consistent with the eternal life we live in him. Luther puts it well in the previous quote, where he says, if he is a Christian tailor, he will say, I make these clothes because God has bidden me to do so, so that I can earn a living, so that I can help and serve my neighbor. In fact, Luther goes on to say that when a Christian does not serve the other, God is not present. That is not Christian living. Luther's statement may sound extreme, but I believe we desperately need this kind of statement in our minds as an antidote, antidote to the danger that most of the things that interest us are not inherently bad. The things we want to do or have are not usually evil in themselves. This is actually very dangerous. It can be so easy to let that be the end of the reflection and drift toward a focus on our own satisfaction. We are called to be discerning. We must remember that we are not in our families, vocations, or communities for our happiness alone, but so that our neighbors can experience the glory of God in how we use material things. All vocations God gives us are valuable. All of them can be used for God's purposes. This is inspiring stuff for the economist. But Luther doesn't want us to forget that proper use of our vocations and the resources they employ requires an attention beyond our temporal goals and concerns. Any vocation God gives us provides us opportunities to serve our neighbor. These opportunities will look different in different vocations, and our relationship to the neighbor will differ across situations. But attention to our vocation's power to serve God by serving neighbor should be cultivated. As an academic economist, I'm sometimes asked to read someone's paper and give comments after they present it at a conference. This work is a part of my vocation. It involves carefully reading someone else's work and providing feedback in a way that ideally would help them improve and later publish the paper. There is a dangerous part of this work. There is a temptation to see this as an opportunity to look smart or to not look smart. This is also an opportunity to express a love for my neighbor through the attention I pay to his work and the tone with which I comment on it. Is my concern to look as smart as I can by making him look dumb or does it really seem like I care and I'm trying to help? God has actually opened doors to share the gospel because of the way I have previously discussed someone's paper at a conference. I have had the opportunity to speak about faith in a shared professional language when the traditional church language just hasn't made sense to them. I believe a similar argument can be made for the way we spend our money. Consumption is a large part of how we use the resources available to us, and this too can be done with or without attention to our neighbor. 
While in graduate school at the University of Hawaii, I decided to always go to one coffee shop. So actually, coffee and tea shop, for those who are wondering what I was doing at a coffee shop. Um, I would study there and meet with friends there. Anytime I wanted to use a coffee shop, it was this one. I paid attention to the people there, the other customers and employees, and was there often enough that many of them came to know me. This familiarity led to more opportunities to share the gospel with people in the context of relationship than I have ever had in a similar period of time. God turned my consumption and my studiousness into an opportunity, opportunity to seek the eternal good of those around me. This opportunity required that I pay attention to those around me and be less focused on my immediate goals. Now, I don't want you to think of this or for us to think of this as another burden I'm trying to lay on us as we seek to do good work in our, vocation, in our vocations, present and future. In fact, I believe that a proper appreciation of this idea can be freeing. As Dr. Capic reminded us so well in a previous chapel, we are finite creatures. We are given multiple vocations, at home, at work, and in between. If your goal is strictly to maximize your excellence in every one, you are going to live a profoundly disappointing life. You may be getting straight A's right now, but you will not get straight A's in life. You cannot do everything perfectly. In fact, if you're not Jesus and you think you are doing something perfectly, you should come see me and I can use economics to show you that you have a real problem. <laughs> but I have good news. We are evaluated in our vocations not by the world's standard, but by our Lord's standard. We are called to love our neighbor by what we do. It is true that will often mean striving to do very good work. But the calls of love are too diverse, idiosyncratic, unpredictable, and mysterious to coincide perfectly with a narrow, worldly view of vocational success. Not all of you can be the best accountant, student, banker, or teacher in the world, or even in your own town. But all of you have unique opportunities to love those around you. You can love in a way that no one else can. As we leave here and go about our work and play, can we remember to pay attention to the fact that our worldly resources can have eternal significance? Are there ways in which we can express through our vocations a genuine and appropriate concern for the good of those around us, coworkers, employers, customers, suppliers? In our spending, are we completely focused on ourselves or can we look for opportunities to use even our consumption to promote the good of our neighbor and make friends for eternity? In our daily, seemingly mundane choices regarding our embodied life, do we pay attention to those around us? Jesus desires that his servants be shrewd. I know these questions are complex. I know it may sound unsatisfying for me to say that I cannot give you general answers to these questions, that the answers must be worked out in the particulars of where God places you, but that is the truth. If I could give you general answers to these questions, then shrewdness would not be necessary. I can pray that we continue to pay attention. God loves his creation and has called us to use all his material gifts as his good managers for his eternal glory. Covenant College, let us not be foolish. Let us be vigilant, paying attention to all God has entrusted to us, remembering that whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches? Pray with me. Lord God, 
Forgive us for our dishonest use of what you have entrusted to us. We cannot but fail as your managers without your help. Grant to us, by your Holy Spirit, the power to pay attention to our situation and the discernment to use all that we have to seek the eternal good of our neighbor and glorify you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.